Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to focus in on verses 11 and 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. Remember that we're to the section of Paul's letter where he now tells us how to practically live out our faith. After all that Christ has done for us in our new birth, creating the new people of God, how are we to live? And we know these first 17 verses, he's essentially saying we're to live unified as the body of Christ. And then the whole rest of the book is we're to live holy lives. And so we're in the section of we're to practically live unified. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does he mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ as we consider what God has called us to, how we are to live, how we are to walk, we are often captivated by certain types of leadership, by certain types of people. Just listen to these words that describe these types of people. Innovators. Innovators are exciting to read about, are they not? Groundbreakers, trailblazers, inventors, creative artists, pioneers, outside the box thinkers. These are the ones that Netflix or Prime Video or people make documentaries about. Elon Musk, what an interesting man. What a powerful man. What a rich man. What an innovator. What a trailblazer. It's so exciting to think about. What would it be like to be led, to be friends with someone like that? Sounds so exciting. Steve Jobs, you know, this phone right now that's timing the sermon and tells me I go over time every week. Thanks, Steve Jobs. In fact, you can even text me. It shows up on my iPad while I'm preaching. Thanks to Steve Jobs. He thought of that. Figured that out. And we're amazed by innovation. But as Christians, we are not just handed forgiveness of sin, 
the guarantee of heaven and then told, go make something of your life. Be innovators. Be inventors. Be creative. Be groundbreakers. That isn't what God has done. He has not told us to go make something of our lives, to be creative and nice. And when you do it together, when you're innovative together, call that the church. That's not what God has called us to. As sovereign grace was birthed out and planted in those five or six men that was kind of the planning leadership knew that this church was going to be unique in this present environment. We didn't, we maybe didn't know much, but we knew that this church was going to be unique. But in saying that, we did not by any means want to be unique in history. We wanted to be unique in this present culture of how churches function, but we did not want to be innovators. We wanted to be normal in the realm of church history. In other words, we wanted to be a biblical church. We did not by any means feel that we were handed a blank slate, that our job was to be pioneers or innovators. That might sound exciting. That's how some church leaders and churches think of the ministry. What can, what can we do with this? Let's think outside the box. But what the opportunity of planning a church provided us was a chance at a fresh start where we were able to constantly keep asking the question, what are we supposed to do and why? How are we going to do it? What's our church constitution going to be? What's our statement of faith going to be? What are we going to do practically? And why would we do whatever it is we think we're about to do? We knew that the church planning team did not have the authority to decide those answers and those questions, but that Jesus Christ stands as the head of any true church. Christ is the authority of the church. He is the one that bought her. He is the one that gave her life. He is the one who commissioned her. He is the one who gifted her. So we knew that to get answers to those questions, we knew we needed to look to Christ. We knew that Christ gave us his spirit, that through his spirit, Christ gave us his word. Through the apostles, God gave us gifts, men who were apostles and prophets, 
and evangelists and shepherd teachers. All those were given to us to help us answer the question as to what are we to do now? What are we to do with our lives individually? What are we to do with our lives corporately? And we've read in the past few weeks how we're supposed to live. What, what's a life to look like that's worthy according to the calling to which we've been called? And the answers uh, that we were given is we're to live humble, loving, unified lives with one another. That's the first six verses. If you don't start with humility, you're not going to end up with love or unity. The point of this section is unity, all the way to verse 17. God has called you to live not individually, separated from one another, but you were saved, you were brought to life, given new birth, so that Jew and Gentile would be reconciled to one another. God had reconciliation in mind, the sinner with God, and then God's people with one another. And all that is with the goal of unity, so that he says, for we are one body, one spirit, one hope, one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. That's all unity. But then what did we look at last week? The surprise is God's plan for this unity is going to come through a diversified, uh, a diversity of gifts given to people so that we're not cookie cutter people, so that every member of the body of Christ is uniquely gifted so that we can never say we can do without one of them. We talked about as we think about spiritual gifts, we always think of them just in categories rather than gifted people. Get each one is gifted so that if your strength is, let's say, gifted in encouragement, and maybe eight other people say, I think I'm gifted in encouragement, none of you are gifted exactly the same. In fact, the gift God's given you one might be gifted in encouragement and speaking, speaking truth so that that person is unique in and of themselves. Every time the Bible speaks of an individual being gifted, it's never in the plural. God has given you, Christian, a gift. And it is unique, and it is according to God's choice, and not only what your gift will be, but to the measure you've been given it. All that is Jesus's prerogative. That's way different than a blank check to say, now you've been saved. Go do whatever you want. And so last week, we saw that we were gifted uniquely, and that we ought to remember that Jesus had the right to give us these gifts. We're, we're shown Christ as this conqueror that went to the grave, even went and preached triumph 
over the demons and then ascended to heaven. And as he goes to heaven, as he unlocked paradise, the, the, the place where the Old Testament saints were, and, and brought them to heaven, he didn't forget those on earth, but he gave gifts to the church. The ascended Christ didn't forget it about us. He already told us he's going to send us his spirit. And not only does he send his spirit, but when his spirit shows up, his spirit delivers the exact giftedness to every individual believer. That's what we looked at last week. This week, we're going to look at how Christ has gifted us corporately with gifted men that deliver his word to us. I have to admit, for a moment, I told Laura, this isn't a fun sermon to preach. Uh, to say, hey, good news, you've been given a gift, and it's me. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the gift God has given you. But even in the context of what we see is, I am nothing apart from the grace of God. And whatever it is that God has called me to teach, it's ancient. It came from apostles and prophets. I'm not allowed to build outside the foundation of what has been laid. So let's look at our text. As you look at it, I just want to point out a couple things. When you're, when you're looking at this many verses, I want you to look at verse 12 first. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's the goal of the gifts right there. What are apostles about? We're going to talk about that. What are prophets about? What are evangelists about? What are shepherd teachers about? The goal is for the body of Christ to be equipped to do the ministry. To do the ministry. It's unbiblical to hire pastors to do the ministry so that things just get done and the body gets to be spectators. That's unbiblical, though that's normal in our culture. So I just want you to see that. And then at the end of this passage, in, in 15, what's it going to culminate? What's it going to look like? Speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Which means this body cannot mature into love up into the perfection God wants it to have unless each part is working properly. And if each part is to be working properly, each part needs to be equipped appropriately. All right? We're going to spend time. We're only taking two verses on this text, because this is why we do what we do. We believe that our philosophies of ministry are biblical because of texts like this. 
You see, we don't think we have the freedom just to say, how ought we to do this thing? I got a better way to get to maturity. Maybe it's this way, all right? So look at verse 11. And he gave. So this is a, a little bit different giving. So in verse 7, each one was gifted. Each one was gifted uniquely, the individual. Now he's talking about the body of Christ being given a gift, and the gift is gifted men to deliver God's word to God's people. All right, look at what he says. And he gave, by the way, in the Greek, he is emphatic. You're never supposed to get away from Jesus. This is Jesus' church. He bought it. He gifts it. He chooses what gifts. He chooses what amount. He chooses all of it. So we read that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. In the Greek, it's, it's clear that it's shepherd hyphenated teachers. He's not talking about two separate things there. Uh, it's easy to see in the Greek that that's the way that is. That's why the ESV uh, says shepherds and teachers. So let's think about the apostles. The word apostle simply means uh, a sent one. And, and really there's three types of sent ones in the scripture. There's the office of apostle, which most of us probably think of. There was 12 of them plus Paul, and there, I mean, you can argue if there's a couple more, but they're, they're to be heads of the tribes of Israel, which means they're set. We call these apostles of Jesus Christ. Why do we call them apostles of Jesus Christ? Because he commissioned them. They saw him in his resurrected form, and he commissions them. He chose them. They hold a foundational place in the life of the church. In fact, the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is going to speak the words that Jesus said. You don't have time to hear them all now. But the Spirit's going to come. He's going to remind you of the things I've already taught, and he's going to teach you more things. And he chose to do that through apostles. Another form of apostle uh, would be an apostle of the church. Churches send out, send out sent ones, different than an apostle of, of Christ. So we can see this in Acts. We can see churches sending out. It's, it's, it's this word, but they're different than the apostle Paul. And then even in today's church, churches send out missionaries to take the gospel where it's never been. But when we're talking apostle, capital A, we're thinking of the 12 apostles. We're thinking of the apostle Paul uh, that we read about in the scripture. In fact, uh, let, let me just read a few verses so you can see this. Acts one twenty two. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day, uh, 
when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection to take Judas's place. This man needs to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of his unique apostleship in 1 Corinthians 15, 80. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. That's important. He appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, he was chosen and commissioned by Christ, was he not? When he was blinded and he was commissioned, by the way, here's how sexy his call was. Go tell him how much he must suffer for my sake. I want to be an innovator. Well, I'm going to give you the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's not man's gospel. And you're going to go preach it. And you're going to go suffer for my sake. So that's how exciting it was being an apostle. They weren't innovators. They were those who spoke the word of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we see the beginning of the list of gifts starting in a similar fashion. We read, and God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. So those first two gifts there are apostles and prophets, just like he does in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.19, this is the key. This is really important as we think of apostles and prophets. If you have your Bibles open in Ephesians, turn here. He says, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you believers are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, that's past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus commissions them. Jesus gives them his words. The metaphor is a building. The the perfect cornerstone is what starts the building. The foundation layers are the apostles and the prophets Any evangelist or teacher that's going to teach beyond that needs to teach on top of what has been given to us in Christ. How much are you indebted to the apostles? How big a gift are they? When was the last time you thanked God for the gift of the apostles? Are you thankful for them? Do you like your New Testament? That's a gift from God through the apostles. So New Testament prophets then, as the church is beginning and is going to have all these challenges, God gave the apostles teaching. But then these prophets are like the practical, one way to think of them might be the practical ones in the church body as the New Testament is, is being given. God is giving them special revelation, sometimes things they don't know, like Agabus was given special revelation as this church is, uh, this first generation church is, is uh, being set. But more fundamentally, these prophets would have 
taught the truths of what the apostles are teaching, explained them, shown how they work out practically. And then it makes sense that evangelists come after them. Timothy, the second generation, do the work of an evangelist. Well, what is an evangelist? An evangelist, if you're an American, you're going to get the answer wrong. Because we're shown someone that just goes around, usually often disconnected from the local body, preaching the gospel. But the problem with that is the evangelist is in the same context of the unity of the body of Christ that's to bring people to perfect maturity. Which means evangelists, when they're doing their job rightly, are building up the body of Christ to maturity, not just merely bringing salvation, uh, preaching the salvation message to people. So what's the difference between a shepherd teacher and an evangelist? A shepherd teacher is just going to stay and mature that flock over and over and over again. And you might have an evangelist that actually stays in that flock, but he's going to where the gospel's never been named. Think of them more as missionaries, taking the gospel onto college campuses, taking the gospel, you know, to the Gypsy Day Parade, to the workplace. You're going out, you're bringing the gospel to where it's never been. You're specially gifted in this. All of us are supposed to do this, but God gave gifts of evangelists. And then what, what does a good evangelist do? He brings them back under the shepherd teaching and they're brought into maturity, so that after the first generation of the church, when the canon of Scripture is given, there is no more apostles, capital A. There is no more prophets, capital P, where when they speak, we got to write it down because it's the Word of God. But rather, the foundation's been laid. And now faithfulness to build on that foundation is what's handed to the church. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5 says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then we see in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, their doctrine. That was foundational and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. I love 2 Timothy 4.5. As for you, this is Paul to Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. At another point, he says, fan into flame the gift you've been given as they laid hands on you as an evangelist to go out and bring the gospel to places it's never been. All this is given to the church. What's, what do they all have in common? Many gifts are given to the church. These gifted men, what do they have in common? They're called to deliver the word of Christ to God's people. 
with the idea that if you don't eat, there's no way you can be equipped and be healthy and be mature and ever do what you're called to do. So think how sad a state this can be in churches that aren't fed, therefore aren't equipped. They're gifted. They maybe want to use their gifts, and yet they need to be brought up into maturity even the word we're uncomfortable with is perfection. We're going to see this in a moment. Um, so let's think about shepherd teachers. In Acts 2.28, Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders. Here's what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care this is the Greek word for shepherding, feeding, kind of leading. That's in the word care there. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he, he talks to these shepherd teachers, these elders, and he says, you have two jobs, oversight and care, oversight and feeding. And here, here's how Peter points out those two. 1 Peter 5.1, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, shepherd the flock of God. It's Christ's flock. The way he said it in Acts 20 is purchased, sheep purchased with his own blood. This is an incredibly weighty thing to do. He says, shepherd the flock of God. That's the same word for care in Acts 20, the word shepherd. Exercising oversight. So care, oversee. Care, oversee. That is the job of the shepherd teachers that are given as a gift uh, to the church. So as Sovereign Grace decided to start writing philosophies of ministry, what do we think the Bible says? What would the church look like if Christ gets His way? We don't by any means think we've done this perfectly, and we don't by any means think there's not many areas to grow. But as we wrote philosophies of ministry, we felt like we had to be able to, to go to the text. Because isn't it a pretty weighty argument? How important are apostles? I'd say they're pretty important. How about prophets? Well, now the evangelists and the shepherd teachers, all of them are called to deliver the word of God. A very singular thing. Something that doesn't have all sorts of tentacles to it. It's all very focused ministry. And it's the first thing God did so that all the other gifts can flourish. The people need to be fed. In verse 12, it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
So, once again, I got to help you with these words. The, the word equip there is translated into the King James to uh, the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. It can be translated perfecting. So what's the job of a pastor? To bring about perfection in the body of Christ so that the ministry can bring about uh, or can be done and therefore full maturity can come. Katarismos uh, is this word. Let me just read how it gets translated. To make someone completely adequate. The word complete. That's why the King James says perfecting or sufficient for something, to make adequate, to furnish completely, to cause to be fully qualified. So the individual gifting doesn't just automatically work in in a mature form, but rather every individual believer needs to be adequately equipped and fed in such a way so that their own personal ministry can be fruitful, that it'll build itself ultimately in unity and love. Now, let's think of perfection. Let's, let's think of a few areas of it. So, you have uh, perfect positional perfection in Christ, in your justification. So, the, let me just explain that. Right now, Christian, before God, before the law books of God, God standing as a judge The moment you trust in Christ, you stand perfectly in front of God so that He calls you children. You look like Him. Positionally. Why? Because Jesus' righteousness was given to you as a gift. You stand positionally perfect before God. Christ did that work. You didn't do that work. Christ did all of that work. Let me just give you a few verses here. Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's what joys Paul's heart. I have a righteousness that's not my own because if it's my own, judgment stands before me, but I've been given it by Jesus Christ through faith. And even faith is a gift of the Spirit. So God's doing that. So we're not talking about that perfecting work. That's not what he's talking about here. And then there's the perfecting work that'll be done on the day of glorification. When you become perfectly righteous, actually, you'll be sinless. And when you get your new body, it will be perfect. The writer of Hebrews in 12.23 speaks of this. He says, And to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
That's a guarantee for every one of you. You will one day be standing in the presence of God and your spirit, your heart will be perfectly clean. So there's the glorified perfection. Well, that's not what this text is talking about either. This text is talking about the perfection or the maturing that comes through sanctification. All right? You might be surprised by this, but in the Sermon on the Mount, listen to what Jesus says. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? This is Matthew 5.46. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So he's telling them to love their enemies here. And then he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, yes, you can go look at that in the Greek, and it still says that. So what you're called to as a Christian is to perfection. You're not called to just get a little better. Yes, it's true, you're never going to reach it, perfection, until Christ comes or until you go there, but that's the goal. Not a little bit of maturing, full maturing. That's what the word equipped means. It's the highest bar. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. God predestined that you become like Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have all these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, to, to perfection, to completion. Bring it to completion. This is the goal of every pastor, to equip, to equip, to equip, to bring about mature saints fed so well by the Word of God that they're able to grow. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the goal. It's, it's singular. That's what I want you to see. All the apostles, the prophets, these gifts given, what's it for? What's it for? It's for bringing about maturity in the body of Christ. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you. Now, what's he struggling with? Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. What's he praying? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That's what he's praying for. See, he's not just praying that people get saved out there. He's praying that the church, everyone, stands mature. Or the benediction in Hebrews 13, 20 says this, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, that's the word, perfect you with everything good that you may do his will, 
maturity for doing, maturity for ministry, perfection, perfecting is the way to say it, growing in sanctification for the building up of the body of Christ. All right, I'm just going to give you three things real quick before I bring it to a, a, a close. Now, and, and this was helpful. This, I got this from uh, John MacArthur's commentary. When he says, so how is a person sanctified, brought about uh, to maturity? He says, in the scripture, we see three fundamental ways. One is through trials and suffering brings maturity. This would be James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So here's MacArthur's point. It's not my job as your pastor to bring about trials and sufferings. That's God's job. But just know that trials and sufferings are like using a muscle, strengthening a person so that they're equipped. This is not God being unkind to you because God being good to you is to conform you into the image of Christ, not to give you an easy life. See, we judge God's goodness based on how easy our life is, but God judges his goodness and kindness towards us in the trials and the sufferings that makes us more like Jesus. You say, why should I care so much about that? Because that's the point of your salvation. <laughs> that's the point. The new people of God birthed out. That is the point. 1 Peter 5.10, here's how Peter says that. After you've suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore you. That's the word for perfecting. Once you suffered a little while, he will restore you or equip you. It's that same word. So he brings about the, the maturity through trials and suffering. Secondly, by the Spirit. Galatians 3.3, 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now to be perfected by the flesh, basically by legalism. So you've been born again by the Spirit, now you're going to do this in the power of your flesh. So I just can't help but use MacArthur's illustration here. So we're talking about being fed, being brought to maturity. Here's the legalist plan. Start eating one finger, start eating another finger. You start eating yourself, really? <laughs> you're going to be matured by looking inward, by being a uh, innovator, and, and you're going to eat up your own rules and your own ideas, and you're going to be strengthened. Are you so foolish that you began in the spirit, and now you're going to do it in your flesh? Well, well how, how do you do it in the spirit? You do it with the spirit's words that are enlightened by the spirit. That's how you're fed. All right. But lastly, and here's what's practical to our text. We're brought to maturity by the Word of God. This is my job and Scott's job and the evangelist's job. And you're going to see as you're matured, you're to speak truth to one another in the body. That's where this text 
culminates to. So let me give you a few verses. We'll, we'll, we'll come to an end. First Peter 2, 2. I love this. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. You may mature. You may grow up. One commentator said, think of the singleness of mind as a, ba- as a baby. It's like they have one thought. Milk, milk, more milk, milk satisfied, now I sleep, now I go to the bathroom. Milk, 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 milk. This is how you grow up. There's a single-mindedness. There's a, there, there's a desperate need of this is what I want. That's the metaphor that we're given. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Are you saved? Yes. Now grow up into it. Are you a new creation? Yes. But you're a new creation that's alive and works. So work out of your new salvation. Work out of the fact that you are God's workmanship, gifted by the Spirit, given the Word of God. Or how about 2 Timothy 3.16? All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. It's through the Word. We don't need the Word plus. It's a singular focus. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world. So Romans 12, this is now, he did all this theology, what God did on your behalf. Now it's what do I do? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and perfect. See, there it is. How, how, how are you going to grow? You need the milk. The milk, the illustration is the word. You need to long for it. You need it. And then what's it for? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's where we'll pick up next week. All that is so the body can do the work of ministry. See, if someone asks what my job description is, it it is pretty simple. I'm to exercise oversight and I'm to feed. And you can just see it clearly in so many texts. Not supposed to micromanage, not supposed to do all the ministry on behalf of the people, That would be to thrust myself outside of God's gifting and outside of God's plan. And so, uh, yeah, as, as, as a church, our philosophies might be considered basic or simple. We don't have all these program philosophies. But we have the belief that as we do and focus and and meditate on what God has called us to do, the body is going to be matured. And then as the body's 
matured, as they're growing, they're speaking the truth to one another, and all of a sudden, unity and maturity go hand in hand, do they not? 